You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Melanie Fox. She is speech coach. She is also founder of Speech Fox. We're going to talk to her about the work that she does with executives, with professionals on everything from accent reduction to helping them with communication skills. I'm actually a little intimidated doing a podcast with a speech coach because now I'm going to be very self-conscious about my own <laughs> speech here. But uh, you know, I think it's fun because I think that these are things we don't necessarily think about or we take for granted a lot. And I think people who you know have challenges, whether they're cultural, language, or actually physical and speech issues, you know, it's a really important part. And Melanie is a service professional herself. So I'm curious to hear her story about how she's developed her practice and then really what can people do to be effective communicators. I I think in this service-based businesses, the fact that we've got people delivering value to our clients, to our customers, you know, the ability to communicate is paramount. And obviously this is one of the factors that goes into communication. So I'm excited for this. With that, Melanie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. So let's talk a little bit about background first, and then we can kind of get into what you're doing today. But how did you get into this work? What was the story? What was your experience? Tell us a little bit of the um, the journey that you've been on. Sure. So my, my journey started at age six. When I was six years old, my best friend in the first grade, her name is Ada. She spoke perfect English, but her parents had recently come over the year before from China. So when I met my friend's parents, I was introduced to, first of all, hearing sounds of another language that I hadn't heard before. That was Cantonese. And Mm -hmm. then I got to meet her parents and they were very reluctant to speak English. But because I'm already a very non-intimidating looking person, but at six years old, I was even less intimidating looking. (laughs) (laughs) So when I, so when I met her parents and, and, you know, got to be, you know, we got to become best friends, I used to start practicing, helping them practice their English. And so I would write, you know, on whatever materials a six year old had. So markers, oak tag, you know, paper and napkins, whatever it might be. And I, I would, start to, in my six-year-old way, write the phonetic pronunciation of words down for her parents because English spelling could be very misleading. Mm-hmm. And so I would I would mouth the sounds, I would try them out, I would repeat them. And um, the daughter, who spoke perfect English, had no patience for her parents. Yeah, that's <laughs> because, funny. You know, the, the kids thought, oh, her brother as well thought, you know, it was easy for us. What's with the parents? Why are they, why are they lagging behind? But I was just so fascinated that her parents came from another country, you know, took the risk to come to the U.S., spoke another language, and now we're moving through the challenges of, of trying to develop their proficiency in English. So I just thought that, A, 
having another language that you could speak was the coolest thing ever. So I wanted to learn other languages. And I just had this passion for attempting to teach them English and not just so that they would sound clearer, but so that they would feel more comfortable and try it out with other people. So that was really the spark uh, at age six that got wow. me interested in learning languages and teaching languages. And then over the years, um, you know, in high school or middle school, we took Spanish and we didn't really get a full flavor of the culture and even the language. But in college, when I got to choose my major, I chose linguistics and it was almost an accident. I said to my mom, hey, mom, I'm looking through uh, Georgetown's list of majors. What's linguistics? And she said, oh, you'd like it. It's all different languages. And I said, really? So this way, you know, I'm not at a disadvantage that I'm not a native speaker. And I said, oh, that sounds like a fun idea. And I checked it off as an interest area. I didn't realize I would go to Georgetown and I didn't realize that by doing that, I had declared my major. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out uh, both of those things happened. So I, I started Georgetown. I turned out it was a wonderfully happy accident. I loved linguistics and it was sort of like all different languages, but there's a science of language and there are different components. My favorite components are phonetics and phonology. And just to quickly describe yeah. that, it would be the, yeah. se- the sounds of, of languages, how to articulate them and the mechanics behind it and how they sound. And also as applied to English, what are the sound patterns in English? So those are my two favorite facets. And I went on to uh, study abroad in Spain at La Universidad de Salamanca. And that's very, that's nearby Madrid, I guess two and a half hours away. And I loved my junior year in Spain. And I really immersed myself in the language so much. I ended up with a double major. I had the most wonderful time doing what they call intercambio, which is like a language exchange. So mm-hmm. I would find a, many different language partners and you'd sit in a cafe, you'd do an hour of English and then an hour of Spanish, you know, over whether it was a nice freshly squeezed orange juice or a cocktail, whatever it might be. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, the teaching and the learning was going both ways and it was really fantastic. And at the end of my time during my study abroad, I met someone in a, in a candy store since I just used to talk to anyone that would, <laughs> that would practice with me. And I met a woman in a candy store and she said she had done her four years at the university. And then every year for six years, she had failed the exam for English. And that if she didn't pass this year, she was just going to give up and basically leave the university with nothing to show for it. And, you know, I had asked her, um, she said, would you help me? I said, I'd love to. I said, I'm good at helping people prepare for tests. Do you have copy of past year's tests or is there, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a study guide or something? And apparently there was nothing. So I started trying to figure out what was it that, what were the biggest gaps and and where was she losing all of these points to fail each year when Uh. she seemed like she had a lot of knowledge. And in sort of coming up with my own assessment on the fly, I determined that it was mostly about speaking and listening, that when she heard words and had to do a dictation, she was just guessing similar words that she knew. She wasn't able to kind of use the patterns of the sounds to take a good guess at what word it could be, even if she, you know, if she wasn't familiar with it, she, she was writing just, she was writing down just something that she already knew, which didn't uh. match. And the more major part was pronunciation. During the speaking section of the test, yeah. she would get really nervous and was really reluctant to speak. And when she did, the pronunciation that would come out was not was not so close to a to a, a native or fluent enough. speaker. Yeah. So I right and all of these things, um it was people refer to it uh one of the um 
theories by uh, crash and as the effective filter. So you get, you know, when you, when your guard is up and you get really nervous, sometimes it affects your ability to produce language and even to, you know, be Mm. comfortable enough to, to learn language. And, and so I tried to make her more comfortable and I gave her as many techniques as I could during this. I think there were about three different sessions in a coffee house Mm -hmm. and, you know, we, she took her test. We kind of went our separate ways. I had to go home. It was the end of the, the uh, semester. And um, I get a letter in the mail several months later with about 18 exclamation points next to I passed. Thank That's you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And I was so excited. And I said, you know, it was so much fun for me to teach and to really diagnose and, and assess and figure out, you know, what were the gaps and how could I make this person not only feel more competent, but feel more confident in her ability to express herself in English and also to, you know, to understand and to take good guesses, I'd say, at, at when she wasn't sure, how could she just kind of go with the flow and not be so nervous and feel confidence in the level of her training to, mm-hmm. to, make her, to make her feel comfortable in the language. And I felt so good about it that I sought out a job teaching English as a second language to adults, and it kind of went from there. You know, just to finish the, the story and bridge the gap from then till now, um, so my over about 20 years, I've had two sort of halves of what I do. Mm-hmm. One half has been teaching and coaching, and my teaching English as a second language morphed into me coaching privately. Uh, when I taught, I taught what they called level zero. It was really what I would refer to myself as true beginner level. Uh-huh. And I just noticed that after about a semester, my beginner students could outspeak the advanced students because I really focused on speaking and pronunciation so that they could be clear and and really go from not having any language to be able to function linguistically in, in yeah. society. And, um, and I said, this is my niche. This is something that's not really taught. But I turned out that when I decided to coach accent reduction and pronunciation, it really attracted the very advanced learners because it's not advanced folks. They were done learning, you know, English in a classroom and going to whether it was ESL classes or even college level English classes. The idea is the pronunciation still was not taught and folks that, you know, lived and worked in the U.S. for years but weren't native st- speakers still weren't confident in the way they sounded and it could have uh, even imposed some yeah. obstacles in their in their careers. So that was one half. And on the other and the other half of my career, I and I'll make this part very quick, I worked in the corporate world for education companies doing everything from sales, marketing, customer service, hiring, working on product. And in the beginning of my career it was more education companies in general and then it got focused on uh, language companies and I still do consulting for language companies on uh, usually products in um K through 12 for language assessment or language learning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, over the years, having both the corporate experience and the, um, teaching and coaching of English, I sort of fuse them into now a business where I offer three main services, accent reduction being the number one, mm-hmm. uh, dialect coaching for actors being another passion of mine, but it's, uh, the audience is not as broad. So mm-hmm. folks wanting to sound like they're from somewhere other than, you know, I guess a standard American English location. So maybe someone who wants to sound like they're from another part of the U.S. that uh-huh. speaks a non-standard dialect or somewhere overseas. And finally, presentation and communication skills coaching for things that I learned in the corporate world. Sales presentations, job interviews, all of that. So in a nutshell, that is a very <laughs> a very yeah, no, long-winded answer to how did you get to where you are? That is 
That is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, I always find, you know, services, you know, you can have a set of skills, but you can apply them in so many different areas with so many kind of audiences or, you know, customer bases, you know, niches in the market. I mean, I guess what's been your experience on kind of building the business in terms of how you've selected these? Are these things that are highly profitable? Are they areas that, you know, no one else can do? Is it something that is just driven by your passion? How, how have you chosen these areas of focus? Sure. All of these areas are driven by my passion. So we check the box there. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the demand for, and I, I'm based in Manhattan, but I yep. have clients from all over the world. Accent reduction is in demand, and the the amount of people who can provide it and provide it well are are not as easy to find. So there are plenty of people who do what I do. Some come from different backgrounds. And again, my background of linguistics is very, very helpful. It's There's um, the phonetics and phonology piece that I talked about before. They're really, to me, key to helping someone with accent reduction. It's different than speech pathology in that speech pathology feels more clinical. And there are mm -hmm. a lot of things that I will refer out to speech pathologists a lot if someone calls oh, me with you know, um, more of a medical problem, maybe someone who suffered a stroke and now is rehabilitating their muscles or mm -hmm. someone with a speech impediment. So I will refer out to speech pathologists a lot because that, again, that field is different, but related in a way. There's some overlap. And for me, the fact that my clients are non-native English speakers or speakers of regional dialects of English, Interesting. it's really important to understand not just where you want the client to land for their you know, additional new accent that you're helping them build, but also understanding what sounds are currently in their accent and what patterns are different. And there's a really a language learning element to it is different from from, say, a medical element. Yeah. So, uh. so it's speech pathology is related. And again, I refer out for other types of things to speech pathologists. And then you've got folks that are actors, and my fiance is an actor. So the actors are typically good at helping folks with speech for storytelling and projecting and sure. bringing dynamics into a story. So again, there are speech coaches that have all sorts of specialties. And again, I refer out, I love meeting other speech coaches, and we usually have very symbiotic relationships. And one coach I know does a lot with breathing, and that's not my forte. So, so there are all sorts of specialties. So within the niche, I'm sort of really within that pronunciation expertise piece. And then having the corporate side, meaning the presentation and communication skills coaching, has been an add-on that grew organically. I've had clients that came to me for accent reduction but said, you know, I have a job interview or I'm giving a keynote speech or trying to create a TED Talk style speech or something like that. Even, uh, hey, I, I want help with uh, my ability or I need to work on my ability to network and present myself in a clear fashion um, and come up with a compelling message. So even some of my experience with sales and marketing is kind of integrated into the service. So the accent reduction was really a, a niche that was in demand and underserved. All of it's a passion. And yeah. the corporate communication piece really came out organically as a need that, that often crossed over. Because of my active networking, I sometimes yeah. get folks that just want to hire me for the corporate communication or presentation skills piece, which is great too. But it wasn't the way the business started. Yeah. But it again, I've over the years, you know, having my own 20 year track record in corporate and again, having helped clients over the years, that's become a stronger piece of sort of an integrated offering potentially. Yeah. So, but I will say that there are a lot of generalists and speech coaches out there that may be able to help with that portion, but the unique blend is what makes me different. 
Yeah. It's just fascinating that uh, of the two services, one is kind of turning it on and one is turning it off. <laughs> so like, like how, do, how do I take away an accent or how do I add an accent? I, yeah, I mean, from your point of view, are they really the same thing as just changing the way you speak? Or is there something fundamentally different about helping someone reduce an accent that's getting in their way versus working with you know an actor who's trying to trying to develop an accent to, you know, for character and, you know, particular dialect? Yeah, it's a great question. So theoretically, they're the same thing in that you're taking someone that currently is using accent A and they Uh want to land at accent B. For both types of services, I'd say I usually think of it as as adding an accent. So even, for example, someone with a regional accent, my whole family is from Brooklyn. um, Uh So I have myself another accent that, you know, I grew up speaking with uh, definitely a more New York accent, and I still uh-huh. use that, especially when I'm off-duty. It's like it almost feels like putting on your comfy pants is <laughs> going, back to, going back to your native accent. So what, I, what I'd say there is I always like to think of it as adding an accent. Now, some of my English learners will say, well, I don't need to keep my old accent because, you know, I'm learning English and I don't want my mm-hmm. my other accent but there but there's a fine line because for example indian english is a language i have some indian uh-huh. clients that say well you know i do want to maintain my indian accent when i speak with um, indian friends because again that that is potentially somebody's native dialect that they've yeah. developed maybe bilingually so i always think of it as adding an extra accent and of course the person can decide if you know, again, mm-hmm. especially if it's someone who's an English learner and they didn't have a native English dialect, they may just want to leave their other dialect behind because they feel like there were mistakes versus a regional accent or, again, a, a just a, a different accent from American English where they may feel like, okay, I have my native accent and now I have my professional work accent that I use when I'm working in the United States. So whether it's an accent reduction style session or a dialect coaching session for actors. Either way, I'm taking from one uh, someone from yeah. accent A to accent B, but when it's accent reduction, accent B is standard American English, also known as general American English, okay. and sort of the media accent, if there were sort of a generic, non-regional sounding yeah. accent in the US. Yeah. And in dialect coaching, usually the person has something like a standard American English accent, and accent B is something else. The only difference that I'd point out that you'd see come out clearly in the lessons is that someone doing accent reduction needs to speak freely and probably needs to practice things related to work and socializing, mm-hmm. whereas dialect coaching, usually there's a script. So if it's an audition, there's oh, a very specific yeah. script. If there's a, you know, if the person has booked a movie or some kind of theater performance, there's usually still a script with maybe very, very limited ad-libbing. So we can really mark up a very limited universe of items, whereas accent reduction is usually a much more long-term process, and the person wants to really learn to speak freely in that dialect, whereas the actor probably has just a finite amount of things that they need to rehearse in, yeah. in the dialect. So that's that's a different feeling, but you could have a, an actor doing accent reduction, sort of, because maybe it's a, an actor from England looking to sound mm-hmm. like the US, right? Is that accent reduction? Is it dialect? It's probably dialect coaching yeah. um, in that case, but maybe they want to speak in the accent for also when they're going in for the audition and, and yeah. speaking with the folks just to completely mask the original accent to not be pigeonholed. So you know, it's, it's a sort of a, a fluid, I yeah. guess, or a spectrum of, of things. But, but certainly the technique behind it is the same, but the type of work we would do would vary from one to yeah. the other. How much is accent kind of context based? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you're from Brooklyn and like, you know, when I'm sure when you're with your family, I'm, I'm from Minnesota. 
Minnesota, and I, but if I get back up to Upper Minnesota, it's like, oh yeah, really big fish there, don't you know? You know, so <laughs> it, it definitely like it comes. How much do you see this kind of you know accent and and how people are pronouncing things? being about this context. So, uh, and by the way, I have to, cor- so I'm, I'm technically not from Brooklyn, although I was born there. Uh, I lived in Staten <laughs> Island and Long Island, so I have to, my, <laughs> but, family, uh, but technically, uh, get upset technically <laughs> my passport does say Brooklyn, but um, I can't claim credit. Saying that reminds me of the term code switching. So in language, when you code switch, it's usually that you're changing your language patterns to sound more like the people who are around you. Technically, you could probably code switch to sound different, but usually mm-hmm. people use it as sort of a camaraderie thing. So a lot of things could cause someone to code switch. It could be that they feel that they're in a casual environment. So maybe during work hours with the same people, they have their professional accent on, but then they go out to a bar in non-pandemic times and mm-hmm. they kick back and all of a sudden a native accent comes out. Being relaxed, being emotional, being inebriated, any of these things could potentially cause the accent to come out. But, but back to the code switching idea, when folks are surrounded by people who speak the accent that they did when they were younger or a kid or, you know, at least something they were exposed to for a while growing up, you tend to start to gravitate towards that accent. And that could involve the pronunciation. It could involve vocabulary that you choose. So it's like the if the context evokes good memories or triggers some, again, something that you want to get closer to, it's likely mm-hmm. that it can help bring up an accent that maybe you haven't used in a while. Some people will say, oh, I, I thought your accent was was pretty normal, but then when I heard you pick up the phone and talk to your family, wow, something else came out. Who's, <laughs> who is that person? And, and that's happened to me. Uh, I've I'm heard sure. people say that about other people. So it's it's. I think sometimes the code switching is 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 a natural thing, but some people might code switch. For example, politicians may code switch to try to ingratiate themselves with the audience that they're surrounded by. And you know, I won't be political or mention any, but I'm sure if you <laughs> if you Google people over time that were running for office attempting to ingratiate themselves with different audiences and having different accents for different road trips, I'm sure you'll find a bunch on all sides of the aisle. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So on, on the corporate side, I'm curious, you know, when you're working with folks, how much of this is helping them communicate better and how much of them this is more of kind of a confidence, you know, giving them you know, more of their own kind of internal confidence around speaking and being clear, like, where do you find the really kind of the desire or the impact or what you're really helping them with? Sure, I think I think they go hand in hand. What, what I'll say is when I do an initial assessment of a client, I'm usually looking for lots of technical sound patterns. And this is really for me to structure a personalized curriculum or mm-hmm. lesson plan. So at first, what I'm looking for are tangible patterns of sounds that are different when I compare. I'm looking basically for deltas in accent reduction between standard American English and the client's current accent. And then I build a very technical-based curriculum with a lot of practical pieces to it. So I may say that, okay, the TH sound is getting in your way because when you pronounce the TH, that would be either or th in American English, I'm hearing a T or a D, or it's sounding more like an F or a V or an S or a Z. There are a lot of very common substitutions. So first, mm-hmm. I'll try to pick out some major pieces that are influencing the accent. Maybe the clients from a dialect that doesn't have R, like American R is is uh, is kind of a unique sound. Some other, I shouldn't say unique because other uh, languages have it, but it's not the most common. So I may pick out some major factors that are influencing the person's clarity when they 
speak. And we're likely to start with things like that. However, over time, once we have some key sounds under our belt and the client gets more comfortable as of having more control over their sound and feel feeling like they're clearer, then a lot of times we'll integrate practicing that in practical applications. Again, if the client has a presentation, we may work on the presentation in some macro ways, like, okay, is it well-organized? Is there too much on a slide? Are you set up for success with the way that you've presented the information? And then, hey, let's go back and make sure we're pronouncing those sounds that we worked on, but it may take more of a back burner because the person has mastered those sounds. So now they're feeling more confident about the pronunciation and can focus more on some other things that are related to audience engagement. And then there may be some words that maybe just we didn't work on those sounds yet, or it's a unique word that just is difficult to understand when the client says it. So we may pull out a few vocabulary words and say, hey, okay, let's work on this particular word because this may not be easy to comprehend for the audience. Or maybe the client's just pronouncing it very quickly and we need to slow it down so that the audience can easily understand. So I'd say a lot of times the pronunciation comes first and that if we're non-native speakers, gives the client more control and confidence so they feel that they're clear. Then we start working on presentations and even though the accent might be on the back burner, it's still integrated in. And then if there's something that, again, is hard to comprehend, we, we take that and, and work on specific vocabulary words or, or specific phrases and make sure that, you know, that everything will be clear. And again, when the client feels like they're clear or when clients feel like they're clear, they usually feel confident. And it, it's great. It sort of snowballs. Sometimes I, I know the term snowballs is used negatively, but this is like a positive snowball effect where the clarity and the confidence sort of go hand in hand. And we start integrating presentations so that it all comes together. So um, so it's a, it's a bit of both, but usually the order is uh, the big accent pieces come yeah. first to at least have the client feel like they're ready to now apply it to something. Yeah. So, and when you're working with folks on presentations, whether it's, you know, formal presentations on stage in front of an audience or just, you know, kind of day-to-day presenting in front of, you know, colleagues and teams and things, what, what are some of the things, common errors that people make that you should be aware of just to be a better communicator in those situations? Sure. Well, something that I'd mention is speed. Speed is usually the enemy. And then a lot of times clients will feel, especially if they're non-native speakers, feel like, oh, if I slow it down, I'm going to sound like I'm an English learner and I'm going to sound like I'm too slow. But I like to give the example to folks that if you picture an office and in the office, maybe there's a a head honcho, so a CEO, and then maybe there are some interns running around, you know, trying to make sure that they do everything really quickly and, you know, are not bothering anyone or wasting anyone's time. So if you think of the intern, the intern's probably going to be running and speaking quickly and sounding nervous and, um, and being the low person on the totem pole. And then you have the CEO who will probably speak slowly take some time in between thoughts to pause and mm-hmm. and think and be mindful of every word he or she chooses knowing that people will wait and knowing that people are hanging on uh, on his or her words as well mm-hmm. so i'd say i'd like to give this example of you know the ceo will take his or her time and just feel free to pause and think 
and organize thoughts before just blurting them all out. So I would say that speed is usually, and again, it's not like there's an error, but I'd say speed is usually the enemy in a presentation, an interview, even a training for other people. Because just because you can think super quickly doesn't mean the audience is ready to digest everything at the speed that it's coming out of your mouth. So, and then it's much harder for someone doing accent reduction to correct those, or, and again, maybe not correct, but to modify those sounds to sound clearer if they're speaking a mile a minute. So I'd say speed is the most common enemy and teaching folks to slow down, to help organize their thoughts, pause when they need to think. And if you're speaking more slowly, it doesn't sound so awkward when you leave a pause. So that's my first usual comment. Of course, if someone's giving a presentation where they're visible and even if they're not, if they're off camera, I still recommend, you know, feeling good about it, knowing that you're prepared and just smile. You know, yeah. you can, it can yeah. be, it's audible when someone's smiling. I even, I spoke with someone over the phone the other day and I said, I hear your smile. You just made my day. So being engaging and being authentic and being a person is more exciting and more memorable than being perfect. You know, a robot can get up and make a speech. And well, I guess that would be memorable if a robot just <laughs> impromptu got up and made a speech. But, but it doesn't mean just because something is perfect, meaning, oh, there were no errors, Technical, doesn't mean yeah. it's good and doesn't mean yeah. anyone will care about it and, and gravitate towards it and, and really feel like the, um, the material was engaged into the presentation and not worrying about, did you make a mistake? Did you say, um, did you pause? Of course, we don't want every other word to be, um, or like, mm -hmm. but it's probably better than saying it and then pausing and having a deer in headlights face as if they just said a terrible <laughs> word, just, you know, a, a flow and a, and a feeling and, um, yeah. and, um, and some, if you're enjoying doing your presentation, people are much more likely to enjoy it. If you are miserable doing your presentation, people are likely to feel the same way. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so that's a part of it. And I'd say to remove negative and extra explanations that are not needed and could come across as taking away from the message. A lot of people will get up and say things like, well, I may not be the, I may not have the most experience, but I've only been doing this for X amount of years. People tend to discredit themselves. And the problem is your audience may believe you and your audience yeah. may take your word for it that you're not the most qualified. So why should I listen to this person? So mm -hmm. trying to, and I'm a very self-deprecating person myself as far as my humor goes. So even for me, I need to sometimes edit out things that I would say that I think are funny, but may come across to others as, you know, that I'm insecure about what I'm saying. Yeah. So I try, if there's a joke, try to make it very clear that this is just a funny personal joke about yourself, but it does not take away from your authority in delivering the information. So a little bit of making sure there's not too much explanation or discrediting, even something, even I'd say uh, just to tag onto this as, as the last piece, especially yeah. in network networking where I network in a group where we have 30 seconds and any extra words take away from your potential to deliver the most uh, optimal message. So even if folks say, hello, for those of you who don't know me, all of these extra words, even saying thank you at the end when there's 80 people in the room and everybody's doing 30 seconds, to add additional words that you don't need, even if they're nice words like good morning, thank you, for those of you who don't know me, you know, uh, November has come, things like that, just taking out 
sometimes I just refer to it as cut the crap. <laughs> what yep. in what in the presentation is not needed? If it's that short, then any extra word is your enemy. Anything. Yeah. So unless the message is so simple that it can be delivered in 15 and you have 15 extra seconds to schmooze, okay, fine. <laughs> but if you really have got something to say and you're trying to put, you know, a, a, a success story, stories are wonderful. So if you're putting out a success story and trying to maybe give the room an ask, then anything that's not the success story or the ask or perhaps a tagline to help them remember you, all of those things are interfering with your message. So slowing down enough to be intelligible in that 30 seconds while getting in some engaging content, not discrediting yourself and taking out any extraneous words. So yeah. those are those are all, I'd say, free tips that are become part of many exercises where rehearsing or building a, a presentation. Yeah, no, good advice. Melanie, if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, what's the best place to get that information? Sure. My website is www.speechfox. That's speech, S-P-E-E-C-H, like speaking, and fox, like the animal, which is my last name. So speechfox.com. And you can also email me at Melanie, M-E-L-A-N-I-E, at speechfox.com. I love it. I'll make sure that the URL and the email is in the show notes so people can get that information. Melanie, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Bruce. This was a lot of fun. Take care. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.